Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, new rules coming out to Ontario to make landlords more accountable and give tenants extra protection. We'll give you some of the details on that. Why won't the Ontario government release the documents that could show why they chose incursions into the green belt? What are they hiding? And the big grocery stores profiting from inflation? They say no. A lot of other people would disagree. Marvin Wright is going to join us and talk about that. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get into housing. Uh, the provincial government did, I, I think, make some positive moves went in the right direction when it came to renters yesterday. Making life easier for tenants is the focus of a series of new measures being proposed by the Ford government. Global's Tina Trujani has details. Municipal Affairs and Housing Minister Steve Clark says the province is looking to tackle the rules around rent evictions, where tenants are forced out so the landlord can upgrade their units and then charge more for rent. He says if a tenant must leave for the work to be completed, landlords will have to provide a report from a qualified person stating that that is indeed the case. The tenant must be notified in writing about the status of that work being done, and they'll also have 60 days to move back in. Landlords must give these tenants the opportunity to move back at the same rent they were paying. And because renovations take time, we're proposing that tenants would have two years or six months after the renovations is complete to apply to the landlord and tenant board for a remedy should any disputes arise. Also being proposed, deadlines for landlords or their family members to move into a unit when they evict a tenant. As well, those who don't follow the rules will see maximum fines doubled to $100,000. Tina Trajani, Global News. So there's good news there that the government seems to be addressing some of the concerns about those who are renting. Uh, the not-so-good news is is that, well, the housing starts that they had promised us are just not happening, at least not to the degree that they said they would and not to the degree that we need these days. And it's all part of the same package here, really, you know, because let's face it, in, in bygone days, uh, people might start out as renters, but eventually their dream is to buy and purchase and be a homeowner. That's becoming more of a pipe dream now than a reality for an awful lot of people. And uh, something has to be done about it. I'm going to get some perspective from our next guest about that. Uh, he is uh, Michael Collins-Williams, who is the CEO for the West End Home Builders Association. Uh, Mike, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Bill. Thank you for having me. Uh, good ideas about rentals, and we can talk about that in just a couple of seconds. But I think the greater concern here is that, uh, a little snippet of information that we got, uh, I guess, about a week ago when uh, the finance minister delivered his Ontario budget. And they talked about uh, the housing starts that they wanted to make this year, and, and they're frankly going to fall way short on that. And there's a concern here that we're just not getting enough product out there. What's going on? Well, the good news is that we're up somewhat on housing starts over the previous 10-year average. The bad news is that we're nowhere close to meeting the provincial targets. So, um, you know, we've we've been talking about the need to build 1.5 million homes across Ontario over the next 10 years. Um, the federal target from the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation is actually higher. They're suggesting we need closer to 1.85 million homes over the next 10 years. Uh, and we're just not yet meeting those targets. Um, unfortunately, you know, we live in a bit of a model where there is housing scarcity versus housing abundance. And there's a need to shift the model where, where we don't have a constrained housing market, where there are more opportunities to build more of all types of housing and, and, and try to um, level not only home prices, but I know in the later segment, we'll get into rentals where there's huge pressure on the rental market as well. Uh, and everybody's starting to feel that right now because, as I say, there's usually a, a progression that goes on in housing, as you say, from rental to purchasing or rent to own. I mean, there's a number of different things, but everybody seems to be stuck in neutral right now because the product just isn't available right now, which makes, of course, rental 
more property, rental properties rather, more deer. And, and you know, we've got people now, I'm sure you saw the latest survey uh, from uh, Ipsos that basically said about 70% of the people that do not own homes right now but had ideas about them have pretty much given up. And they said, I'm just never going to be able to afford that. Uh, that's terrible that they have that attitude. But, I mean, there's a series of things that, that I think need to be addressed uh, to, to try to allay some of those fears and to try to make housing more affordable again. And it just doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah, you, you alluded to that uh, there was a poll recently that about 63% of Canadians that don't own a home have given up. And, and a lot of that is young Canadians. Uh, and a lot of that is new Canadians that, you know, have, have traveled across the world to, to sort of have that Canadian dream. They've chosen Canada and it hasn't quite worked out as well as they thought it might. There's sort of this housing continuum that typically, you know, people starting out, uh, they, they start in a small rental. Um, save up and and maybe they they get uh, you know a, a step up a, a nicer rental space and try to save up for that down payment on that first home um, a starter home a small condo and and eventually work themselves up to something that uh, works in the long term and it's it's sort of this ladder um, that the typical person goes through as as they transition through life and uh, unfortunately the whole system's been jammed up where people aren't able to make that jump from rental to ownership and a lot of that is to do with the massive demand through population growth um, Canada grew by um, just under 500,000 people um, last year we brought in more immigrants and and um, uh, international students than we ever have before we actually grew by a larger number than the entire United States and this is putting incredible pressure on the housing sector which is why we need to build that 1.5 million homes across Ontario over the next 10 years. And uh, in here in Hamilton, the pledge is for 47,000 uh, units over the next 10 years. And, you know, Hamilton over the last 10 years was averaging about 2,000, just over 2,000 units a year, meaning we need to more than double that to around 4,700 units a year, which is a pretty difficult task. Exactly. And and there's so many factors involved here, but let's focus in on a couple of them. And one of them, of course, is going to be a word that we're using a lot these days is affordability. Uh, when it comes to a house purchase, you know, we it's, it's going to be the largest purchase most of us will ever make in our lives when we buy that, that house. Uh, and I know the government stepped up with this tax-free first home savings account idea that they produced in the budget. Uh, but we found out now that most of the banks aren't even prepared to do that yet. They haven't got the program in place, et cetera. So it's not really available. It's there, but not yet. Uh, and the other element, too, is, I mean, a year or so ago when you and I were talking about this, I mean, the housing prices were just crazy. So we could say, well, I can understand, you know, that you know, a house that used to be $600,000 is now a million, and, and that makes it doubly, you know, difficult to afford it. But as prices went down, as you predicted they would uh, this year, in the first few months anyway, interest rates have shot up. So they, one way or another, Mike, they keep moving the, the, the finish line further and further away. When you think you've, you've made some ground up here, all of a sudden something like that happens, high interest rates and making it more difficult to qualify for mortgages. And I think that's why so many people seem frustrated. We really have a perfect storm right now, and there's uh, there's a number of variables, and, and you mentioned a couple. Um, the, the first one really being interest rates and mortgage rates. So over the last year, there's been a slight easing in housing prices. However, they have started to stabilize, and just in the last month, they look like they're starting to start to creep upwards again. Um, we'll see sort of what happens in the spring market. Um, but with higher mortgage rates, you know, even if that home price is $100,000 less than it was a year ago um you know instead of getting a mortgage in the high twos low three percents people are looking at the 
high fours, low five percents. And, um, you know, it's not the sticker price that matters. It's the monthly carrying cost yeah. that matters. And then on the rental side in Hamilton, a one bedroom um, rental unit is up 20.1% over the last year. And a two bedroom unit's up 15%. Um, so the affordability is a problem. And this all relates back to supply and the cost of delivering those units. Um, the price of concrete in rebar has gone up substantially since the pandemic started. Uh, the price of lumber shot way up at the beginning of the pandemic. It has come back down to earth. Um, but those are sort of the input costs when building either high-rise homes uh, on the concrete rebar side or the, the wood and the lumber on the low-rise. Uh, the cost of labor has gone up. And, uh, of course, taxes haven't come down. Um, yeah. Development charges are still elevated. Uh, the cost of a land transfer tax, that has not come down. The GST and HST components, they're still there. So a lot of the input costs to building new housing um, have not come down. In fact, they've gone up. So the cost of actually delivering that supply to the market is a massive challenge. And just like consumers listening that are thinking of their mortgage rates, builders and developers also have to go to the banks for loans to finance the construction of housing. And those financing costs have shot up substantially over the last year, year and a half. Is that stalling projects that, that maybe could have been done in, in, a, in a more expeditious fashion? In Hamilton, it hasn't hit badly. Um, there's definitely been a slowdown, but there have not at this point been outreach project cancellations. In the larger high-rise condo markets in Toronto, in Vancouver, and in different Canadian markets, there have been quite a few uh, cancellations or major delays to condo projects because, um, you know, these are four or five hundred million dollar projects. And when you're looking at a few percentage increases in project financing and thinking of building a 40 or 50 story building, you don't do that in a year that takes uh, that takes place over a few years. That's adding tens of millions of dollars to the cost of construction. Um, and then on the purpose built rental side, and we desperately need more rental housing. I mentioned how much the um, the 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 average prices have gone up in in Hamilton and across Canada earlier. Um, there's been a lot of cancellations of purpose-built rental projects because with the financing changes, and those projects are much more sensitive to uh, small changes in the pro formas. The cost of financing going up just kills the pro formas and kills projects outright. Which is only going to make the rental situation even worse because once again, you, you don't have the the stock to to be able to accommodate the people that may want to uh, rent instead of buy, or, or at least in the meantime. Anyway, uh, what about the labor situation? When you and I talked a few months ago, you, you had trouble getting skilled trades. Let's face it. I mean, uh, is is that easing? Is it getting better? Uh, it, it's roughly the same as it was a few months ago. However, there are some positive changes that the provincial and federal governments have made. Uh, and this is a great example of bipartisanship where a conservative provincial government's working with a liberal federal government. Uh, about a month ago, a major announcement was made in terms of economic immigration to double the number of immigrants coming to Ontario with specific skill sets in the skilled trades. So, um, you know, it's not a snap of the fingers. It doesn't happen overnight, but it is a positive announcement that both the federal government and the provincial government are are looking at the labor shortages uh, and trying to bring in more people with the appropriate skill sets to build not only our homes, but our transit system, our hospitals and schools. 
And uh, another component is as part of the recent provincial government, a uh, substantial investment was made into skills training. And again, this doesn't happen overnight. It takes time uh, to train that next generation of labor. But uh, the good news is both the federal and provincial government have recognized there's a problem and we're starting to slowly turn the ship around. To that end, then, let's uh, focus on something else that you brought to our attention some months ago, too. Uh, and that's the the responsibilities of municipal governments. I mean, ultimately, that's where the zoning occurs. That's where the uh, hopefully the planning occurs at the same time. Uh, that's where the developer will go or the builders will go to go before council to the planning committees of those councils. Uh, there seem to be a, 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 some some traffic jams there as well. I, I don't know if I, I've been told a couple of different things that there aren't enough city staff these days in planning be, to be able to, to to process a lot of these applications. Uh, but there's a, there's a political element sometimes too. And I know that even the folks at Ipsos said uh, what they were concerned about was the number of people that said, yeah, but we don't want that kind of growth in our neighborhood. You can build it someplace else, but don't build it across the street from me. Uh, and, and that attitudinal approach to this nimbyism basically is what it is, uh, is really going to be a problem going forward when you want to finally start to put your pedal to the metal and start to build the, the houses that we need here. I, I love reading polls where people recognize that absolutely we need to build more housing, just please build it somewhere else. Yeah. Um, so again, this goes into that we currently have a model um, across much of Canada um, where it's housing scarcity versus housing abundance. And in a constrained housing market, that is going to push the cost of housing upwards, especially with the unrelenting population growth we face. At the municipal level, there are a number of challenges. Um, there are the political challenges that ultimately most new housing projects, whether it's at townhouses, single detached homes, a, a rental building, a high-rise condo, it comes down to a political vote. And there are all kinds of pressures on those local politicians uh, to say no rather than to say yes. Mm -hmm. And even when we do get to a yes, sometimes it's a multi-year process uh, and sometimes that yes ends up in the courts uh, at a tribunal rather than being determined at City Hall. The other component is the bureaucratic component where, um, quite frankly, um, municipal planning departments, and it's not just an issue in Hamilton, it's an issue in a number of municipalities, the process is very complicated. The process takes many years and they just don't have enough staff right now to actually help adequately and efficiently navigate the process. So um, municipalities do need to hire up and builders and developers pay for that um, through planning fees. It's it's 100% cost recovery for the planning fees, but there's just not enough people to process the applications. Hamilton does have a commitment to build 47,000 new units over the next decade. Um, there was a recent report from Hamilton suggesting that there were 37,000 units in process, but when you break that down, there's just over 4,000 units that are actually approved and permit ready, and that's typical because in a typical year, we, we pull permits on 2,500 to 3,000 um, permits a year, depending on the year, so that's sort of a regular cycle, um, but there's different stages or gateways. Hamilton's got around 13,000 units that are draft approved. That still means that there's conditions that have to be met, and it could take a few years to actually get shovels in the ground. And then they've got another 11,000 pending. That's not even applications in process. Those are uh, applications that are being discussed and could be years and years away. And they've also identified another component of potential development. But 
you know, that's neither here nor there, but yeah, there's exactly. no actual application. Well, I think the takeaway here is that uh, all the programs sound wonderful and they sounded great when the government's presented them, but we're just not getting the job done. So uh, we're going to have to relook at some of these things or maybe accelerate some of these programs. Mike, it's always great to get uh, an update from you on what's going on in the market. Thank you so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Great speaking with you. And the only stat that really matters is a housing completion because that's when the keys get delivered to a family. Exactly. Exactly. Mike Collins-Williams, uh, the CEO of the West End Home Builders Association. Thanks again, Mike. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Very much related to the uh, the problems with housing here, of course, is where we're going to build those. And that leads us into the controversy here in Ontario right now about incursions into the Greenbelt. And I, I think you all know the history of this. Of course, the, the Ford government, including the Premier himself, uh, promised dozens of times, actually, that there was never going to be any incursion into the Greenbelt. Not going to happen. Nope, nope, don't, don't even worry about it. And then, of course, just before the uh, the election last fall, they said, yeah, we're going into the green belt. Uh, but they said there's a very good reason for it. Well, due to some great reporting, investigative reporting done by uh, the Narwhal and Toronto Star, uh, we know a little bit more, but not probably as much as we should. And there is documentation, we're told now, uh, that might actually clear the air on this and shine the light on exactly what went on, who knew what, etc. cetera. Uh, and they admit that there was a document like that, but they're not sharing it. It's not for you and me to see, apparently. I want to bring one of the reporters in that did such great work on this file, and that, of course, is Emma McIntosh, reporter for the Narwhal, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Emma, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Great to be back, Bill. Thanks for having me. How frustrated are you right now? You've done some great work on this, you and your colleagues, uh, to find out exactly what's going on. Uh, It's led through some of the conversations that went on in, in the legislature to investigations now by by the Auditor General, by the uh, Integrity Commissioner, maybe by the OPP. We don't, yeah, they're, they're not being very forthcoming with what they're doing right now either. But they're not allowing you. you. You've been pretty much shut out now from the government when it comes to trying to seek more information, haven't you? Yeah, I don't believe that uh, Minister Clark's ministry has actually answered a, a question from me, maybe since November. <laughs> the, uh, the freedom of information documents are sure not flowing either. Now, if You've asked him about this. You've asked the staff about this, uh, and uh, they're not returning your calls. Uh, that's pretty obvious. But to the best of your knowledge right now, as we talked this morning, uh, they have admitted that there is documentation that gives a timeline as to what happened uh, and simply saying, well, just take our word for it, basically, because they won't show you the uh, the papers, will they? They won't. So here's what we know. The, the Ford government has told the public one story about how all of this happened, right? They tell mm-hmm. us that the parcels of land that were removed from the Greenbelt were picked by bureaucrats who presented it to the minister, the minister signed off and presented it to cabinet, and that all of that happened within a matter of days before we, the public, found out about it. Um, and on the face of it, I have some questions about that. I don't think that story answers every single question. But... To kind of get closer to some of those answers of how this actually happened, we requested all documents that flowed from the Premier's office to the ministry that works on the Greenbelt in the weeks leading up to this decision. And we were told, yes, there is one document, an email with a PowerPoint attached about the Greenbelt, and we can't have it. Uh, and, And what's important to know here is that the government does have the right to withhold these documents under a rule called Cabinet Confidence. And that's so that lawmakers can have the freedom to deliberate and explore ideas around that cabinet table, right? It is important. But the government can also choose to release those documents when there's a a huge matter of public interest, which has happened before. And what we're arguing here 
is that this is a case where the government should show this to Ontarians because we have the right to understand how this played out. Well, to your point, I mean, even former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney uh, he lifted that 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 barrier, I guess, uh, when it came to the Carl Hans Schreiber investigation. Uh, he he got beat up pretty badly for you know, the information that they found in there, but he understood that there was a, a a common good here that the public had a right to know what was going on. Uh, this government apparently is thinking just the opposite. Uh, and when this sort of thing happens, uh, and you've been doing this for a long time, the frustration here has to be is you know that information is available. Why? aren't they is it really because there's some business deal going on the client privilege uh thing that they keep throwing at us or is it simply because they'd be embarrassed as hell if we had this information in front of us you don't know do you no and, and we may never know um the narwhal is pursuing this through the appeal process and you know who knows how long that could take right um governments also have a pretty wide latitude to declare things cabinet confidence and withhold them um but maybe the silver lining is those three investigations maybe that you mentioned earlier. Um, we know that the Auditor General, for example, has powers to examine documents that the public cannot. So I'm hopeful that we might know what's in this document one day. Uh, we just have no idea when. And, and certainly, I mean, hey, if the government wants to change their mind, could be today, who knows? Well, can you go in the side door, like you just said? Can you ask the Auditor General's office whether or not they have access to this information? Have they seen this? document? We have asked. And unfortunately, the Auditor General is not allowed to tell us that information. Neither is the Integrity Commissioner, and neither are the OPP. So for now, this is going to remain behind the curtain. Maybe the other plea that I can put out there is that we know that there are people who have seen this document. We know that. Um, and we know that those people are probably bureaucrats who are bound by a lot of things. But if they want to to come out and tell us what they know, I think that's something the public would really appreciate. And, and this is just you know, this is not an effort to try to embarrass any government or any individual within the government. It's simply a matter to get some clarity on why the decision was made and by whom was the decision made, and which are, are I think you know relevant questions to what's going on here. Uh, you know, their assertion that this was all done by bureaucrats. Uh, are they the same bureaucrats that uh, wrote the report that said that there wouldn't have to be any incursions under the green belt? Or, or maybe they were different bureaucrats, because that, that report exists too, doesn't it? You reported on that. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I think that these are some of the questions that we really need to have answered. Just on the face of it, the government's story about bureaucrats choosing the parcels, it has holes in it. You know, um, who told those bureaucrats to do that? If I think a, a team of senior uh, ministry officials presented a plan out of the blue to reverse a major election promise from the government, I think it, it kind of defies explanation to think that they would do that without someone ordering them to do so. So that doesn't make any sense. Another thing that doesn't make sense is the criteria that they were given to select the parcels. The government has told us that they tried to aim for things that were on the edges of the green belt or things that were kind of close to urban areas already. And that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, there's a huge chunk uh, in the Duffins Rouge Agricultural Preserve in Pickering that's nowhere near any existing development because it was all in the green belt. It's right next to Rouge National Urban Park, you know? So I could go on and on. The, the point is that there is a lot that's unanswered here, and critics are certainly saying that the premier's story doesn't add up. 
So where, where does this end? Do you just kind of have to wait until maybe the integrity commissioner or the, the auditor uh, comes out with their report and just see if it's included in there? I mean, the, they're slamming doors on you here right now. And, and like you say, you don't have too many tools to be, to be able to fight back here. You're right about that. It's kind of a game of wait and see at this point. The auditor general, her term is actually ending later this year, and she has told journalists that she will be issuing her Greenbelt report before she leaves. So that would place that as, you know, before September. So we're going to be waiting a while, but maybe not too much longer, depending on how things go. Well, I, I again congratulate you on the work that you've done on this and uh, and your dedication to this too. And uh, I, I know the frustration level ebbs and flows uh, when you start, you know, getting doors slammed in your face. But uh, you know, uh, we're hoping it's going to end well, and that this information is going to become available too. Because I think. It, the timing on this is what I find suspect. I mean, people, I think, buy into the green belt right now. Yeah, we all know we need housing, but we understood, I think, the importance of the green belt, even though people that maybe didn't support it initially when the McKinney government brought it in. But I think we and know exactly what's going on now and why this has to happen. And, and the question you're simply asking is why? Why'd you do it this way? Uh, when you promised, I think, well, you guys did the count on the Narwhal. I think it was 38 times between the premier and the, and the uh, you know, municipal affairs minister that there were promises made that they weren't going to do this. What made you change your mind and, and so rapidly? And what a coincidence uh, that all these people bought land here just at, before you made the announcement. Like, you know, as the, as the old phrase goes, I guess, inquiring minds want to know, don't they, Emma? They do, but you know what they say, when, when the door is slammed in your face, you find a window. And I think that's what we're trying to do at the Narwhal. We're, we're really lucky. We are funded by readers who care about this work. And that's enabled us to file, I, I believe, 50 or so freedom of information requests so far. Uh, we've spent about $2,000 on this to date, and we have no intention of stopping. So we hope we'll have more to tell you soon. Good. Well, keep doing what you're doing. And thanks so much for the time this morning, Em. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Emma McIntosh, reporter for the Narwhal, still trying to get some answers uh, about the uh, Ford government's green belt uh, about face. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about grocery prices, because uh, that's front and center with everybody these days. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk about the uh, the huge raise that uh, the guy that runs Lawbaugh's just got after saying that the industry is not making any money. Uh, but let's talk about how you and I are going to experience it when we go through the doors there and get our buggies. Experts now say the Canadian presence of American retail giants like Walmart and Costco is not really to blame for the rising grocery prices. That's despite the Canadian grocery chain executives uh, that pushed MPs to question these retailers as part of the study. They said, hey, what about them? Eh? Karen Rebo has the details. University of Toronto economist Ambaris Chandra called ongoing hearings performative, saying all retailers seek to maximize profits despite their stated efforts to minimize price hikes. Chandra says all grocers are going to charge what the market will let them get away with. Simon Samoji, an agribusiness researcher at the University of Guelph, says any added big volume competition in the grocery sector helps force down prices. Walmart Canada's CEO took questions from MPs on on Monday night, Costco's manager for Canada will do so on April 17th. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. All right, uh, so that's the scene, and, and it, that's really not changed over the last couple of weeks. I mean, that's what we've heard from the grocery giants, and uh, and the concerns still seem to be the same. Although, although we also have reported in the last little while the fact that inflation is going down. Not fast, but it is going down. There seems to be a steady decrease. That's good news. Uh, some of the other factors seem to be leveling out. So we're thinking, hey, great, that's got to have an impact on, on our food prices, right? No, 
No. Well, the story we got yesterday from the, the latest survey says that actually uh, prices are going up in many areas uh, around the grocery store. So what is going on? Well, we're going to ask our next guest that exact question. He, of course, is Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, great to have you back on the show today. Uh, uh, and to try to make some sense out of this, if that's at all possible, if, if inflation is going down and pricing is going down, the price of fuel seems to have gone down, why are grocery prices still going up? Well, right. So uh, can I come at this two different ways for you, Please Bill? do, First, yeah. Uh, a question that was raised over these hearings is, why are prices different by different retailers? Uh, they pointed a finger at Walmart. They pointed a finger at Costco. So here's just a quick primer on that. Okay. All of these businesses engage in something known as cost plus pricing, meaning they take the cost to them, they add a markup, and they sell it to you and I at whatever that works out to be. Now, the problem you've got is that a company like Walmart or Costco buy a product in such huge quantities that they get big volume discounts, which means their costs are going to be lower than a small mom and pop grocery store. So then whenever you add your markup, and let's even assume they're using the same markup, well, the same markup on a higher priced item gets you a higher priced item in the store. The markup on a lower priced item gets you a lower priced thing. I'm saying all this to you because the first thing I always advise consumers to do is look around. You know, I don't believe anyone who tells me they have the lowest everyday prices. Uh, that's a lovely slogan, but I need to prove it to myself. So you owe it to yourself to look around. And uh, in a study that was published just yesterday, uh, a reporter took a, a small basket of common items and went to 10 different stores and got 10 different prices that varied quite dramatically between them. So if you are worried about high food prices, you owe it to yourself to look around. And in some cases, take advantage of the volume buying that some of these companies come from. But to your other side of the question, why are even the costs of these people still going up? And there's still a few different answers. So this is March. We don't have locally grown fruits and vegetables, so we are importing them. And when we import them, we pay in US dollars. The Canadian dollar has fallen against the US dollar uh, to around 73 cents. It was 75 cents a year ago. So it's a small change, I realize, but when you're importing items, that higher cost of the American dollar means your costs are going up. We still don't have all the supply chain issues resolved. That also has been causing some problems that way. But I think I'm going to look at it this way. Uh, the, the study you quoted said that as we look forward in 2023, food prices might go up around 5%. Last year, they went up 10%. So we're moving again in the right direction, but as slower than we'd like it to be. Okay, and I, I, I get that, and, and you know, I, I think everybody understands the idea about produce, and you know, you go down, up and down the aisles of the produce section, ninety percent of the stuff is you know from Mexico or, or California, so that's that's a problem. But that shouldn't impact my cornflakes, should it? And, and the other thing is, what's going on with beef? Beef apparently is is just off the, the charts these days. Right. So we we had a situation uh, towards the end of last year, twenty twenty two, in which there were a couple of. Uh, meat slaughtering companies that had to close. They had a COVID infection in them, so they weren't able to process meat. And that lack of supply has caused the price to go up. We expect that's going to go down when they get all these plants back online and producing. We call that euphemistically a, a supply chain issue. But um, again, I think people have to say, well, if I need protein, and we all do in our diets, is beef the best way to get it? Pork prices have remained fairly low through all of this. 
and that's a perfectly good substitute and relatively low fat. <clears throat> There's also chicken. Those prices have gone up as well. I mean, everything has gone up, but you need to owe it to yourself to shop around and think about it and make adjustments accordingly. Um, I, I will tell you that I think, why did your cornflakes uh, prices not, not, not come down? Uh, even people like Kellogg's have been trying to figure out what to do. They have been uh, moving some of their plants offshore to try to get cheaper labor costs involved in all this. But then you add the transportation costs. I'm not sure they've saved that much in the long run. Yeah, that's uh, almost an outdated mindset, isn't it? I mean, there was a big, big concern years ago. Uh, well, even in manufacturing, you know, Chinese steel and everything else, until they realized, oh, it's costing us an arm and a leg just to ship the stuff across the ocean, uh, which I thought brought a lot of these industries back home. And don't tell me, you know, you're telling me Kellogg's has moved out of Battle Creek, Michigan, Marvin? Please say it ain't so. I mean, that's well, that's part of their legacy, isn't it? It wasn't so much Battle Creek, Michigan, but the Kellogg's cornflakes that you eat here in Canada had been made in London, Ontario, ah. and that factory has closed. So they yeah. haven't moved from Battle Creek, Michigan, but they have moved out of Canada. And then again, once you're not in Canada, those prices are higher that way. I, I'm not trying to justify this, Bill. I think we've no. seen CEOs of the companies get in front of the House of Commons and make their cases. But, uh, I, you know, I think there was and is some room for these grocery stores to not raise prices. We saw them freeze the prices of their no-name or generic product for a period of three months. And I, I'm not clear that they can't continue to extend that. All of the big chains in Canada are reporting record profits. Uh, so, you know, it's a choice that people are making. The economist you quoted said that all businesses are in there to profit maximize. And there is some truth to that. Although we often say that we have to have what's called a triple bottom line. Not only do I want to make a profit for my shareholders, but I've got to treat my employees well. And then I have to think about the customers and give the balance between those three bottom lines. At this moment, I'm not sure these major grocery retailers are coming up with that perfect balance between those bottom lines. Well, I know because even Weston is still, you know, hugging onto this thing about, you know, on a customer's $25 grocery basket, uh, we earn just $1 in profit. I mean, just about every economist I've talked to is calling BS on that and saying, come on, Galen, really? You know, and, and then, and then to add insult to injury, you get the story yesterday, uh, that he just doubled his, his salary, uh, you know, from four and a half billion dollars or million rather up to almost eight and a half. Uh, and, and this is the guy that was crying poor just two weeks ago in front of us. Now I get it. He, they own the, 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 the company. All right. He's not the C, you know, he's not hired. I mean, he's, he's a Weston. So, uh, and I know CEOs that own companies that are working for a dollar a year, but you know, for this guy to basically double it uh, just after he testifies about this is, is really kind of smacking us in the face, isn't it? It is. Now, in fairness to Galen, uh, and just, just to maybe change your dynamic ever so slightly, uh, Galen gets a salary for doing three or four different things. So he runs uh, Loblaws, he runs the Shoppers Drug Mart, he's you know, got a seat on the board, what have you. So his total compensation last year, Bill, went from $10.5 million to $11.75 million. His raise was $1.25. Now, you pointed out the one that seemed to jump up the biggest, but that went up when something else went away. We, we won't get in all the technical details, but nonetheless, he went up. But here's the key. He doesn't set his compensation. It's the board of directors who sets the compensation. I have served on board of directors, and I have been involved trying to figure out what is the right compensation for chief executive officers of organizations. So what you always do is you hire some consultants. You say to them, okay, look at equivalent-sized companies 
and tell me how much they're paying those people. Uh, the Western Group, which is Loblaws, Shoppers, Drug Mart, what have you, is a 43 billion, that's with a B, billion dollar company. So they would look at other companies and the consultants came back to the board and said, you know, Galen, given the size of this operation is underpaid. And it was the board who decided that he needed to have a, a compensation adjustment and gave him the additional money. Now, you might argue, well, Galen, just because they wanted to give you the money, you don't have to take it. But I would draw the sports analogy. If you're a quarterback and you have a good track record, uh, and somebody says, I want to pay you $10 million a year to play football, you're not going to say, oh, just give me $5 million, that's close enough, because there is this comparison between the other quarterbacks. Uh, and so this, this is what you see happening. If you want this kind of talent, you pay for it. But this is a board decision, not a Galen Weston decision. Oh, I get that. I, I get that. But from a public relations standpoint, it's it's a nightmare. And this was the oh. worst possible timing for it, uh, given what we're going through right now. And, and uh, you know, to release this story, if I were Weston, and I get it, uh, you know, that, that you know, first of all, this guy's never going to miss a payday. OK, we know that. And God bless him for that. You know, the Westons have been very, very successful in this business for a long, long time. But he could have said not right now. Let's 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 revisit this maybe six eight months from now after we get over this hump and instead of simply just kind of throwing it in our face, uh, it, it, these guys have got to understand and we've talked about this in the past about other companies as well. There is a public relations element to this too. We know that they're in business to make money and they're doing pretty well. Thank you very much. Uh, you know I don't see too many of these places closing their doors, uh, especially at the CEO level. But you know the, there's timing and there's to say hey wait a second uh, we don't feel your pain we're just kind of busy up here in our ivory tower and that's that's the wrong message to send at this time yeah you're you're absolutely correct here bill but again i'm blaming the board on this the board could have received the compensation study said okay thank you we'll we'll study this a little bit more we'll take a look at this we'll maybe we'll come up with something called a deferred compensation plan yes galen we think you should have some more but what we're going to do is back end it you'll get it if this happens next year or the year after and we'll that's when we're going to do it. So to me, it's the board who was tone deaf on this, uh, who made these decisions in 2022. Now, this didn't happen in the last couple of days. This actually happened a few months ago in 2022. But it couldn't have been more poorly timed if they tried. And that's another challenge in governance uh, is, is not only is it the right decision, but is it well timed? Does it look like the right decision? And, and so I think the board here really missed it. On this mark now could galen have done something sure but I, I don't think he felt that was his job this was the board's compensation decision so i'm going to blame the board squarely for bad timing and maybe even a bad decision exactly let's i got a minute or so left let's just circle back if we could to to what's going to happen going forward uh, right you know can we assume then marvin that uh, that you know as the weather gets nicer and and you know our produce starts getting done here you know we're we're you know big on earth to table these days so you know yeah. we know that's going to have an impact on on pricing uh but is it going to bring us back to a level playing field here where we're going to start to see prices decrease well i think the best we can hope for is a price freeze bill i don't think you're going to see prices fall back there's that would require what we call a, a negative inflation or deflation. And we don't think that's going to happen. But as inflation keeps coming down, we think food inflation will come down. And so either prices won't increase at the same pace, or maybe we'll see some price freezes over the course of the year. But if you want to see it rolled back, I'm afraid you're just not going to do that. The only other tip I can give you is if you do happen across a, a good sale on something, stock up 
take advantage of it when you can, because you may not see those prices again anytime soon. But isn't that, again, from a marketing standpoint, you know, butter was five bucks a, a, a block last year. Now it's about eight and a half bucks. Uh, if they drop yeah. it to seven, we're going to say, hey, that's great. That's a decrease. But it's still up two bucks over last year. In other words, they are taking advantage of this situation right now. Yeah, I, again, I understand what you mean. But one of the reasons what drove it to seven dollars or eight dollars is that their costs have also gone up. We've increased the, the price right to the farmer. Now, yes, I do understand the farmer only gets a thin slice of the wedge and the people who process it and turn it into other kinds of products, they're, they're uh, marking things up as well. But the whole cost structure has changed. And for prices to really fall back, we need to see the whole cost structure go the other direction. And that's not happening, especially in dairy, the milk, those sorts of things. Those prices have gone up and no one's talking about rolling them back. So uh, all again, all I can offer people is if you do see some good prices, stock up, take advantage of it when you can. It, this is really up to you to be the smartest consumer you can possibly be to fight the effects of inflation that you're seeing. So we're going to go back to those days where I'm going to go to Sobeys for my meat and I'm going to go over here to Costco for my vegetables and, and back and forth like this. The one-stop shopping thing seems to be passe now. Well, again, it's up to you to find the company that gives you the right prices on the items that you consume. We do know that discount chains, a chain like No Name or Food Basics, does offer goods on average at a cheaper price than if you go for the bigger brand name out there. But then you don't get the other things that, say, a Fortino's or a Metro offers. So it's up to you as a consumer to find that balancing point. I'm not for a moment suggesting you should visit 10 different stores every week, but you've got to find the right combination to make your dollars go as far as they possibly can. Actually, yeah, we're all doing that these days, I guess. Marvin, always great. Thanks so much for the time today. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.